Welcome to the B2B Marketing and Copywriting Podcast. I'm your host, Linda Malone, certified conversion copywriter, copy strategist, and founder of Copyworks. Join me each week as I speak with experts in the fields of marketing, copywriting, decision-making, psychology, and more, all with one goal, to help you attract your ideal customers and inspire them to take action. My guest today is Tass Bober. Tass spent 15 years in B2B marketing, specifically in digital. She ran a few marketing departments with budgets from $60,000 up to $10 million and drove over $3 million in revenue in a single year from digital source programs and saved an average 50% infrastructure costs. So today we are going to talk about everything frameworks, frameworks and systems and how they create marketing efficiency how organic LinkedIn growth is grossly underrated in marketing, and a few other things, including how marketers can build their own framework and systems for efficiency. So let's dive right in. And I'm so excited to talk to you today because we've been kind of friends on LinkedIn for a little while, like a couple of months, right? Yeah, since we did the live event or planned the live event. Right, right. Yeah, so... That was the beginning of everything. And uh, what I love is how you say Taz as in SAS, not Taz. Yeah. You get that a lot. You probably do. Why did Yeah, I made it up because I kept hearing people say Z at the end of my name. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, that what they're, they're either I'm saying it wrong or they're hearing it wrong or it's a natural inclination to add a Z. So I started adding a rhyme to it. Okay. Um, to make sure that people were pronouncing it correctly. And then it took the guesswork out of it. That's funny. I once listened to a long, it was a instructional webinar where the host pronounced all, like there are words that the S is pronounced like a Z. Like I want to advise you. And he pronounced all of those S's as a soft S. And it made me so crazy by the end of the webinar. Just, I couldn't even listen to him. It was, it was so, I feel like stood out, you know, when you notice something and then you can't unnotice it. And like every time he said it and it was just this way of talking and it was uh, very weird. But, um, and speaking of like things that I always like to start with something that's a little fun that maybe people don't know about you. And you yeah. mentioned in your bio that you are, you were, are you still doing deadlifting and heavy? Yeah. So I still lift. Uh, that's my primary workout. So I work out five to six times a week, primarily weightlifting. And uh, I'm no longer trying to shoot for crazy numbers. Now it's more, can I be healthy enough to run after my two children? Um, <laughs> and just, you know, making sure that I have some time. And it's also my time for idea generation, listening to podcasts. It's kind of my time. But yeah, at peak fitness, no children, no responsibilities. It was, it was on, you know, I was just, I, I'm always very goal oriented. So it was just, how can I push those numbers up? Did you know, you know, I was a personal trainer for like 20 years. I don't know if you know. I think we did talk about that a yeah. little bit. Because if I, I was not lifting as much as you lifted, but I lift heavy for my size too. I'm like five, three and a half. And I, um, yeah, I was, I just love it. It's, I think it's, there's a certain mindset that when you are lifting, especially if you're lifting heavy, all of your focus has to be on what you're doing. And I think that's what really makes it, it kind of relates to business in that way. And I remember once having a client, I was, I was working at a, a studio and I told my client how much I lifted. And she said, do you mind if I actually watch you do that? Because she 
I don't think she believed me. And it was, I don't know, 60 pound dumbbell presses, which I do not do anymore. And she said to me later, she goes, the thing that impressed me most was the focus. Cause I said, if I lose my, what I'm doing, if I just start thinking about anything else, I'm going to drop those things. I'm going to really hurt myself. <laughs> so it was, I think that's how it relates to like business is, you know, you kind of train yourself. Right. But you don't yeah. do, you don't lift like that anymore. You said not that heavy. No. And you know, the funny history with that is I always thought of myself as a non-athletic person. So I'm five, two. I've always been kind of on the stocky side, you know, compared to other girls my age growing up. So they were all soccer, basketball, all of these things. I actually, they told me that I could not be selected for basketball because it was so short. It was just devastating. But so my sports were just limited. I, I did a lot of like short putt and stuff growing up. So I actually have a nice arm on me. But then once I met my husband, he was into lifting and I always hated the thought of going to the gym and running because everybody thinks that they need to go to the gym and do cardio. Like that's the workout and the exercise. So when I discovered lifting and I'm like, wow, okay, I'm short. So my range of motion, my full range of motion isn't actually that much, which means I can lift a lot heavier than other women. And I was stronger than the average woman. It was like game on. I was just like an angry woman at the gym, just like... <laughs> lifting like crazy and pushing those numbers and seeing how far I could push my body. But it was great because it defeated a lot of uh, things mentally for me where I thought, okay, I had to be, you know, in order to be lean, I can't be very strong, but I lost 30 pounds and I was lifting more than twice my weight because I was 129 pounds, 5'2", deadlifting, 265 pounds and squatting 225. I mean, I have videos too, and I was very focused on form over just the numbers. So making sure that I had the full depth in motion, the full range of motion. It wasn't like the, you know, the short pumps, (laughs) we're calling it a day. Um, So I was very, very, very focused on that. I think that definitely relates to to business and that kind of that mindset. So many people I know that are really successful in business work out. I think the two go hand in hand, whether it's, you know, lifting or running. A lot of them are runners. It's just never been my thing either. But but yeah. I could talk about this with you for hours, but let's jump into today's topic at hand, which is frameworks. And I want to start by asking you, what's the difference between like a framework and a template? And I'm coming at this with really no knowledge of frameworks because it's not something that I've really worked with. So can you talk about that to start? Like, how do you define a framework? Yeah, it's not, uh, I don't think this is the official definition. So I'm just going to give you the way I see it, which is a framework could encompass a ton of templates. So for example, I have a framework to to the way I approach a website redesign. And then the website redesign process could have, you know, the master plan. And then you could have um, like a UAT checklist in there. You could have a requirements doc that's a template in there. Um, you know, you could have like we had a whole, you know, when we're mapping out the creative that goes on the site, that was a separate document. Um, so there were all of these things that encompass this entire like framework of how to get this project start to finish. And so more like a project plan. That's how I see it. And then the templates are multiple templates within one, you know, and then that's like the overall product. Okay. And you said 
we've talked before and you said you're super organized with like, don't you do frameworks for everything around your house too? Like, yes. I actually, I'm going to give a shout out to Lachey Lewis because we were talking about that. I was just on Dave's podcast and I talked about the template queen and she was like, there's no way you have a template for all of these things. And I went through my Google Sheets last night and I screenshotted and sent her all of my different templates. Every trip, the <laughs> wedding, insurance carriers, HSA plans, my LinkedIn social growth, everything uh, is in there. So I have a lot. I have a lot. I don't think I have enough, but I have a lot. <laughs> and every day I develop new ones. I always try to do, I have like right in front of me right now, I have two calendars, two big calendars um, and, and two notebooks that are just blank that I just always put stuff in. And I, I do use, um, what is it? The uh, I, I use a couple of, of apps for that too. But what, and I still haven't found one that does everything I wanted to do. So can you talk about how frameworks create like marketing efficiency? So obviously it's an efficient way and it's very organized, but exactly how does it work? I think the biggest thing is, and this also comes with a lot of experience, right? You're not almost always going to create one out the gate and it evolves over time. So what my website framework looked like six years ago and what it looks like today, completely different. Mm. And it's evolved. It's it's like on steroids right now. <laughs> so it's, it's, you know, there's just a lot of iterations that have happened and that's, that's how you're doing it. That's like marketing 101, you're iterating, you're evolving, you're changing based on what you learn. And so that's exactly how I implement all of my things. And so, yeah, so back to the question, it was, oh shoot, I kind of completely lost my train of thought. Sorry about that. Sorry. What was the question again? How um, frameworks work for marketing efficiency. Oh, yes, for efficiencies. So for example, one of the things that I noticed was, oh, I was hiring people based on recommendations from peers or, you know, someone would say, oh, this person's great, or I've worked with them in the past, and then I just carry them, you know, company to company. But that's not necessarily a fair way to do it because one company's growth trajectory is different than another one. Um, you could bring someone in, but maybe they're too big or too small for the company that you're at. How do you source people appropriately? So at this point, I created a system and I said, okay, here are the things that I've looked at for the past, but then here's it marrying with the current situation that I have. I created a soft RFP template that I fill out based on where the, co where the company is at the time, what our budget is. And then I source, you know, folks and agencies, the consultants based on where we are price-wise, what they can offer us, what stage companies they work with. And so those are the things that you iterate and you customize, but you have a base template for like how you've thought about it in the past, you know, mm -hmm. process-wise. Um, so I always look at that. I look for patterns and then I see how to customize it for that specific, you know, place. And now I have a framework for a high growth a stage company or an early stage. So that kind of thing. And that's how the library expands. Yeah. It's identifying patterns, seeing where I can do, but now I'm not redoing the work from scratch. I can still apply a lot of that to the next part and just customize the parts that need customized. That sounds awesome. And so how do you, where do you physically put all of this? Do you use a particular platform? Do you just put it on Excel? What do you do? So uh, everything is in Google Sheets right now okay. for me. The reason why is AI just need a lot of flexibility. And so most of my stuff ends up there. And the other thing is it's pretty agnostic. It's almost like everybody uses it. So if I built everything 
in Asana or Jira or Confluence or whatever, now we're going to run into access issues. This person can't replicate it. So uh, using something that's a little more agnostic, I know a lot of people build their stuff on Notion and um, for companies, you know, like Google Sheets, but sometimes even the problem with Notion for a startup that might be a little bit later stage, now you're going to have access issues. Are they approved by InfoSec as a vendor? But G Suite is pretty universal. It's just safer to keep it there. And it's safer to customize too when you take it company to company. That's a great point. Yeah, because I do use Google Sheets with a lot of, of lo- a lot of people. And especially editing, um, going back and forth. It's just easy, you know? And even yeah. if someone doesn't have it, I mean, it's easy enough to get it. It's not, you know, I don't know who doesn't have it now, but I'm sure there's some way. <laughs> and you said that um, speed matters over perfection. So what do you mean by that? I think that we can get caught up in this web of red tape, leadership alignment. Everything always changes hands. It's like a game of telephone, especially inside a company. So I've created ad copy variations that I thought was super clear based on the research that I've seen, based on the data that we've seen. And then you send it for approvals. And by the time you get it back, it looks nothing like what you sent out in the first place. But the problem is you're held accountable then for the outcome of that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, okay, well, this is the approved copy. Now I'm going to launch it. It's not what I initially had in mind. The data comes back. It's not great. Well, there's a reason why you use the copy that you used in the first place. So that part of the process, you know, it can make it, can make it very kind of hard. Mm-hmm. But the best way to get alignment is saying, you know what? I'm going to ship the first version. You're not going to like it. What's the saying? Like you put copy in front of someone and they're automatically going to edit it. <laughs> right. Right. Everyone has an opinion on copy, just like everyone has an opinion on marketing. So now if we ship, 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 we're going to open that feedback loop. We're going to get the data that will support yay or nay. And there's been lots of times I've been proven wrong, but I won't know that until I put something in the market. But you know what you're not going to get a response on is if you put something extremely vague in market. And then now you're just further away from what you're going to test. Are you going to test if you have something like revolutionize your tech stack? What are you going to te- What is the next logical thing to test if that copy doesn't work? Right. Because it doesn't really say anything. Right. Um, so I think that's where we can kind of get hung up and the the copy by committee kind of shoots us in the foot. Mm-hmm. So I'm always like, can we just get this out the door, even to a small sample see what the data comes back with and iterate from there. Did you ever see the meme that I posted about the Mona Lisa? They had the Mona Lisa, if if she was, if it was a today, like marketed and ed- edited in a marketing uh, department today, and it had like the Mona Lisa and all these things like, she doesn't, can we make her smile more? Or I don't like the way, you know, why, can we put like a roller coaster in the background and make it more exciting? And it was like all these really ludicrous things. And that's, I felt like with some of the copy and the thing is copywriting is still considered a soft skill by a lot of people. Like it, you know, there's, and it's an insult to people who have, you know, really studied and worked. Like I've worked with, you know, high level copywriters. I've taken courses where like I'm a certified conversion copywriter because that certification is something I wanted and it was something I earned, but that all gets brushed aside. It's like, I just don't like it. And so, yeah. And when you put out something vague, which 
I call marketing speak, you know, and that's mm-hmm. what AI is doing a lot of. Everything is, and it, it just, because it's not an originator. AI is just pulling from what's already been said and done and written. And so I had a talk yesterday with um, one of my copywriting coaches and I told her, we just talk about how we're using AI. Mm-hmm. And I said, I, I love to generate ideas, maybe clean up some copy, but for actually, you know, to write something, no, you know. Do you run into that? What's your take on, on AI with everything that you do? AI right now, the focus is a lot on copy because it's the easiest kind of low-hanging fruit. So that's what everyone's, you know, up in arms about. I talked about this a little bit with AI and when it comes to landing pages or design and that kind of stuff. And I just answered a question today because someone put out a prompt about how to do conversion rate optimization utilizing this AI prompt. And people were tagging me like, oh, what do you think about this? Because you talk about landing pages all the time. And I read the prompt and I'm like, you know, it's fair. You could have 15 iterations of a headline copy or subhead that it's going to give you, but the entire prompt was centered around content. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that is if you start with AI and you get your 15 iterations, cool. You've taken care of a volume problem, but you haven't considered talking to prospects and customers, using their exact pain points, their exact language in the copy. You have volume, but now you're not referring to the data that's coming in to say, what is the next logical thing I need to test? And it's not accounting for experience, which is, is the form causing a point of friction? Are there too many exit points on the page? Is the design, you know, does that not have enough contrast to be accessible? These are all things that it's not considering. So I still think that AI could be a good tool to use if you're thinking about maybe different ways you can say it. It still needs you to do a lot of the thinking. It needs you to be appropriate in the prompting. And it still needs a lot of human intervention. Yeah. So I think it can make you efficient in some places, but it still needs you to intervene and bring that original specific POV that it's like you said, it's trained on stuff that already exists. Right. So then what, you know? Right. Um, so yeah, I'm not anti-AI. I'm kind of leaning into it. So the first thing that happened was I'm like, this is not something I know a lot about. I took a master class on it. Now I know how to create prompts, what I would use it for, but I don't use it to do my work. It can't replace my work yet. So I'm not super worried about it. Yeah. And I think that's the general um, consensus around there, especially with copywriters where, you know, it's a tool. And I think as I had heard from uh, the one, one of my copywriting friends, she said, you know, AI is the, the Barbie pink of the moment. You know, it's like, okay, it's trending. It's everyone's talking about it and we're talking about it. I mean, it's here to stay, but it's like the analogy that I heard is like, well, when, you know, other things came into play, like, um, you know, things that were replacing, we thought like, now I can't think of a single analogy um, <laughs> we that certain things were going to replace. It, it, there's very rare that anything really replaces anything. The only thing I could think of is CDs replacing albums that actually did happen. But there's plenty, there are times when we think something's really going to just completely replace something that, you know, we've been using and the thing is we work around it and we include it. And that's how I see AI right now as far as, you know, what we're doing. But but even in, in creating like landing pages, so are people, 
I have seen a lot of AI, you know, attributing like, oh, we can, you know, we can use AI for landing pages. So all those things that you mentioned, I mean, that's really what goes into a great landing page is, is to get your customers quotes. I know from just doing the copywriting I do, a lot of times somebody will say something in an interview and it's like, that's going to be a headline because it's so good, you know, and you don't get that from AI, right? <laughs> so. No, you don't. And there are landing page tools. So maybe I can I can help with an analogy, but there are landing page tools. So things like Unbounce and Instapage, and they can create landing pages and they have them templatized. And I'm like, okay, why can't I just use this? They're obviously encompassing all of the best practices. But in my opinion, best practices are, you know, they just make you average at best. Right. Uh, because that's the, you know, just kind of like the median of what everybody's doing. So the outliers aren't the people who are doing them extremely well. I said this earlier, I think a few podcasts ago where I said, you know, no one's looking at, at a landing page and going, wow, they have followed these best practices to a T. Look at that. That's beautiful. No one has ever said that. But people respond to things that are a little bit out of the norm, things that are a little bit more creative, things that stand out in the sea of mediocre. Kevin Rapp talks a lot about that. I mean, that's why, as much as I hate to give him a compliment, he <laughs> has, I think, the best profile visually on LinkedIn. And yeah. this is taking into account big creators, small creators, whoever, people who have a design background, but Kevin stands out in the crowd, you know, um, how do you stand out in the sea of mediocre? So yeah, you can take a template, but you still need that specific POV and it doesn't matter AI or template or tool. Nothing's going to replace the conversations that you're having. And eventually maybe one day we're not there yet. Yeah. And the other thing too, you mentioned Kevin and there's other people that do this as well. You have to be unafraid to just to really rock the boat and to say something that people may not agree with and, but it gets people talking, you know, and that's something like I have, said that I have a problem with it, but I don't like conflict. So I tend to steer away from it, but I will occasionally do Like I posted yesterday about copywriters are not order takers. I kept hearing this over and over. So I came up with that. I created that own little visual of a woman ordering in a restaurant and saying, I'd like one landing page and a side order of like you know, the about page. Because I came up with it because I thought it's true. I mean, that's what we think, you know, landing pages are. And that's what AI would do is if you just can plug in, you know, what you want specifically, but it's not going to give you that personality. It's not going to give you the voice and tone of your brand and that sort of thing. Um, and kind of an aside question, you'd also talk about organic LinkedIn growth, you said is really grossly under, underrated in marketing. So what do you mean by that? This is coming from personal experience and I've kind of become an evangelist for it. But I started posting on LinkedIn April of this year. It was more of a creative exercise. And I read somewhere because I wanted to start a podcast initially for parenting. Fun fact. I bought all the equipment, clearly. <laughs> and I did nothing with it because I put on my marketing brain and I'm like, okay, I need a plan to take this to market. And then I said, I know nothing about promoting a podcast. And someone used the analogy of, it's like having a party at your house and expecting everybody to show up, uh, but the party's actually downtown 
and you got to go meet some people and say, hey, by the way, I'm going to have this super cool rad party. If you like this, I'm going to have one that's Halloween themed at my house. You should show up. And so uh, talking about sharing some of those opinions, getting some feedback on whether the topic even resonates before you go and put in all the work to create this. And I thought that was super cool. So I started doing that, getting feedback. And obviously, since the parenting podcast has been a back burner, because now I talk very specifically about marketing, but then people started reaching out to me for services and that kind of stuff. And then I realized that one thing LinkedIn creators have done well that companies could learn from is providing some of that value upfront Mm -hmm. without asking for anything in return. No transaction, email address for piece of information that's probably mediocre at best. Come on. You know, I've never read a white paper and been like, wow, this blew my mind. But I've given you my most precious thing, which is my information is digital currency. And so can you showcase value ahead of that transaction period? And very few companies are doing that very well. You know, you have Hockey Stack and Gong and those guys are doing a super good job. But for majority of B2B companies... They're just sharing updates about their CEO and everything's about their press release and their funding and their this and their that. And then, oh, by the way, here's a white paper we created just for you, but you still have to pay us in some form with your information so that we can hound you continuously with a sequence right after. And so to me, showing that value first, I I still think that it's such a missed opportunity by B2B companies today. And so it's something that I'm on the side being a big evangelist for because I want them to succeed and I want them to do well. And I know the resources that they put into building their company pages, but there's a way that we can do it better than what the current way is. Yeah. And I agree with that. Yeah. I've been on LinkedIn this April will be three years that I've been really active and it takes a long time to kind of get that sort of trust. But You know, people will say in companies, I don't want to give away too much information because no one's going to hire me. The people who are taking in the free information are not going to hire you anyway. I mean, you know, if if that's what they're looking for, they're not going to pay. So, you know, to me, it's like just a matter of getting it out there. And I've been doing a lot more repurposing and, and, you know, doing like the, the videos that I post. I, some of them are from last year, the interviews with people, but I pull it up. And I take the ones that seem to have gotten you know most um, most views and were most popular, and there's still you know people still are interested in those topics. So, but yeah, yeah, I agree with you there. But what what are some quick conversion wins that someone can get on a landing page? Do you have some tips? Yeah, totally. So I I give away all my frameworks and templates and ideas for free, by the way. So on my LinkedIn, if you want to look at Landing page stuff, I share it three to four times a week. Take it, apply it, go ahead. And so back to your point about, you know, giving away information and selling implementation or whatever, even the implementation side, like I'm not necessarily selling that, but sometimes people need to, they look at it and then they say, oh, I kind of need more help with this because I need to build a plan for testing and optimization or can I set it up with the best strategy starting out? And that's when they come to me. So someone put it very, very well to me, Anthony Pieri. I think I'm saying his last name right. 
And he's huge in the product marketing space for early stage companies on LinkedIn. And he said, you know, we give away all our frameworks for free because if you want to take that and apply it, go ahead and do it. But people will pay you for your brain. So it's not even the implementation. It's just some of that knowledge and closing that, you know, speed to expertise gap that happens. So I'm not worried about sharing that information directly with everybody. Um, So some of the tips that I've shared, and I'll share it here too, is you want to look at the form and function of your page first, because if it's not loading, then it doesn't matter what's on the page. It's just, yeah, it's going to go away. So there's a few ways to do this. There are lots of tools. You can just do like a speed test on, you know, Google, you can look that up. Or if you want to be a little more tech savvy um, and technical, you can go to um, any page right-click, inspect, there's a lighthouse tab, go there and run the report. It will tell you in detail what's wrong, are the images too large, um, how long your page takes to load, certain things that you can do to fix that. So the benchmark that we're going after is three seconds. So that's Mm -hmm. the first thing. Make sure that it loads fairly quickly. And then now you're going to go into the second part, which is probably your favorite, and that's the copy. And this is where a lot of companies, you know, do the jargonifying of the copy and make it something that's very vague. Um, They only try to sell the outcome, that kind of thing. But you want to always talk about what the problem is, agitate the problem, why yours is the best solution. And one mistake that I see all the time, they don't tell the user what to expect if they do provide the information. Mm -hmm. So it's saying, hey, if you give us this, this is exactly what's going to happen we might contact you periodically for updates or you're going to get this in your inbox, you know, that kind of thing. Just setting expectations of what they're going to get of the process and of the thing. You're going to get five steps you can apply immediately and see some changes in 30 days. That's a compelling offer rather than read a white paper with a bunch of statistics and it's like, okay, but what am I gaining from that? What knowledge? Is there something that I can apply today? Is it knowledge that I can take into a reporting call? What is it? So give them expectations of both the process and what they're getting in the thing that they're getting. Um, And then creating low points of friction. So the form shouldn't be so long. Try to remove all of the links on the page outside of the one desired action you want to take. People fight me on this, but I will die on this hill one single CTA, because you've made them a promise in the ad. So if someone has promised you, hey, you're looking for pants, here's these pants that you want. Mm -hmm. And then you click on the ad, but then you're taken to the homepage of the Old Navy store, which I love using as an example. The homepage of Old Navy, now you're searching for the pants when you were like, I already told you I wanted pants. That's a problem. And you know what's funny? Here's a statistic. 44% of B2B companies will send users from a paid ad to the homepage. Oh, really? Wow. Yes. Yeah. And that's, Um, yeah, that's the worst. Cause then they'll, they'll jump off. They're like, I don't want to be digging around. No, it's overwhelming. You and Kevin talked about decision fatigue. It's overwhelming. If they've told you specifically what they want why would you send them on a world tour of your website to find the thing? Give them exactly what they want. It helps build trust and credibility. And to that effect, on the page itself, show them other people who have trusted you. And a lot of people like, use your biggest logos. Like you got to put Target on there. You got to put like Salesforce on there. You know, that kind of thing. You want to have a mix of the knowns and the unknowns because if you're targeting early stage or growth stage companies, 
and they see Target on there, they're going to say, oh, do they only work with these big companies? I don't know if they can help us with where we are at right now. So make sure it's relevant logos, relevant testimonials. And if you do testimonials by people, always use their face and picture and the title. It just humanizes it and makes it seem more credible and real. And then that's really it. You don't need your company history. You don't need a lot of fluff on the page. In fact, you want to keep it pretty minimal. And every single piece of it should drive them to take that action. Right. One of the things I'd add to the testimonial part is that people tend to just randomly kind of post them, but each testimonial should back up the copy before it. So if you're talking about one particular feature of your product or service, the testimonial under it should back it up like specifically. And that's what a lot of people, you know, drop the ball on that and they just put up something random. It's like, you want to back that up. And what I also like is when you're on, I mean, this is more B2C, um, but if you get on an order page to have a quote by someone, because a lot of people get on that page, because I know I do this, "Ah, maybe I don't really need this. Then you read a quote from someone saying, I got this and, you know, this is what it did for me. So they have to be use strategically as well as just use them. So this has been awesome. Is there any, um, where can people find you and where can they learn more about what you do? And especially now I'm going to have to get on your, your profile and and check out your, all your uh, formulas and, and your framework. So is that where people can find you easiest? Yeah. So I post on LinkedIn three to four times a week. Typically, I'm giving away principles, frameworks, all of that for free. You don't have to give me your information. I don't need any of that. And if you like them, people typically send me uh, DMs and say, hey, I really love that. And I shared it in my team Slack. And those are the compliments that mean the most to me because it's validation of the thoughts and ideas and patterns that I've seen doing this for over 400 websites. So that's the best place to find me. My company name is Delphinium. I don't talk about my company a lot because people buy from people, right? Learn from that. Do better B2B. <laughs> and um, But if you did want to go check out my website, it's delphiniumsolutions.com. And uh, over there, I walk everyone through the landing page process. And I've put in a lot of the principles of the landing page that we've talked about today on that page as well. So it's really more of a showcase of work than than anything else. It's a proof. And so you can go check that out. But LinkedIn is the best place to find me. I'm very chatty. And uh, uh, so, you know, I love to talk to people and meet people. So hit me up. Let's have a conversation. Um, No agenda. So. Awesome. Well, cool. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today, Taz. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, thanks again. Of course. And that is a wrap of today's episode. I hope you found some actionable advice that you can use to help you improve your copy conversions. And for even more copywriting exclusive tips, be sure to click the link in the show notes to sign up for my weekly newsletter so you don't miss a beat. And as always, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave a review. It really helps me out. Talk again soon.